So, we are here at the end. We are here at the end, and I want to end where it all began, actually, at the start. And so this is a bit of a talk around revival, part two. Revival, part two. And what I want to do this morning is a bit of a recap and a summary of what we've been doing over these past, can you believe it, eight weeks, it's been two months or so, of what God is saying in this season. And I want to also address some of the challenges we may have faced along the way, some of the challenges we might have faced along these eight weeks. And then I want to kind of bring these threads together and set us on our way. So why don't I start with a recap then? And the recap was that when I started this eight weeks ago, I shared my heart around two convictions that I have for this season. The first is this, that we are in the final hour, that Christ is coming again soon for his bride, the church, and that he will come again soon. And listen, let's, we, we obviously don't know the hour. Jesus says we don't know the hour. Even Jesus doesn't know the hour. But we are called to look at the signs, and you only have to look at what's happening in the world around us to see an acceleration. And there is a, ray, a rise in the prophetic saying that we are in the end times. In fact, I, I mentioned R.T. Kendall, a notable theologian and pastor, who said we've never been closer. And he indeed himself expects Christ to come in his lifetime. And we looked, didn't we, from this conference that John Wimber, the founder of Vineyard, held 30 years ago on holiness. And he said, I have often felt that we have plenty of time, but now I am not so sure the Lord is calling us to get ready, to get ready for him. And that was 30 years ago. And that is the message, that is the baton that has been passed on. And the vineyard movement has yet to fulfill its mandate. Has yet to fulfill its mandate. There is work for us to do as we get ready for him. And so I want to exhort us all to join the Apostle John in Revelation. When Jesus said in Revelation 22, I am coming soon, John replied, Amen, yes, come, Lord Jesus. That is my cry. Is it your cry too? Come, Lord Jesus, we want to see you in all your glory. And so in this new season, it's going to be marked with a sense of urgency for this hour. That we are called to get serious. There is a lost and hurting world out there and indeed in these walls that needs the love of Jesus. And so we've got to get ready. We've got to get ready. And the second thing, therefore, that I shared, a deep conviction that revival is coming. Revival is coming. That a fresh wave of his spirit is about to be poured out upon those that position himself for this tsunami wave. And we looked at um, a few definitions of what revival is, but Richard Owen Roberts, I love this, he sums it up as this. He's a historian, a church historian, says revival is an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. Wow. Don't we want extraordinary results? That his kingdom will indeed break through here on earth as it is in heaven. What do we think we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer? We're praying for revival. How many of you have been praying the Lord's Prayer all your life? That's what we're praying for. And what does revival really look like for us here in St. Albans, it looks like victory over brokenness, a restoration of relationships and unity in our midst. That's what it looks like. It looks like victory over hopelessness, a restoration of hope in Christ and not in man. That's what it looks like. It looks like victory over fear, 
a restoration of his perfect love working in us. That's what it looks like. It looks like victory over injustice, a restoration of his compassion flowing out from us. It looks like victory over isolation, a restoration of his body in all its fullness. It looks like victory over sickness, restoration of wholeness in him by his sacrifice for us. That is what it looks like. It looks like Jesus. That is revival. It is Jesus presencing himself with us in our very midst. And that is what we cry out for. And that is what we are expectant for. And we looked at a sweep of church history, didn't we? Where revivals have broken through. And we said, and we asked the question, do we dare believe that it could be for our generation? Do we dare believe it? I would say not only do we believe it, we cry out for it. What only, not only do we believe it, but we need it. Not only do we believe it, but we cry upon him to raise our faith and expectancy for him to move. You know, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, pastor, had said that what God has done in the past is a precedent and a longing for what he wants to do in the future. I love that. And there is a crescendo of the prophetic saying that revival is coming Even in this midst, I've had the privilege of speaking with so many of you over the past eight weeks who have shared words that God has given that he said he's about to break through. And we say, yes, Lord Jesus. And so, as a recap then, we looked at how we position our hearts for that. And we looked at five things. Humility of heart. Why? Because he pours out his grace upon the humble but opposes the proud. So we're called to be humble. And we looked at what that looks like over two weeks. Hunger after him. As the good shepherd, he leads us and he feeds us his truth. Faith-filled vision, that we respond to those paths that he has for us with faith. That we respond in prayerful expectancy. We looked at the story of Hannah. And then last week we looked at diligent hands, that we have our part to play. And if you missed any of that, I'd encourage you to catch up. And let me just say these positions are not one-offs. They're not a formula. You don't go through them step-by-step religiously and say, well, I've done it now. What's going to happen no, these are a, it's a lifestyle. And you'll find, I'm sure you've already found this, that you go in deeper and deeper and deeper. And that's how God draws us to him. And we have to fight for these positions. Because what the world will tell you is complete opposite to this. But God is saying, respond in faith and press in. Because I have so much more for you. You know, as I mentioned then, uh, I've had the privilege of speaking with so many of you. It's been amazing. But I've also prayed with many of you. I've laughed with many of you, and I've cried with many of you. Why? Because life is not easy. I get it. Life is not rosy. We face battles and hardships, don't we? Suffering and distress. And here's the crux of it. What we see around us doesn't always line up. Doesn't seem to always line up with what, he feels, what we feel like God is saying for us. What we actually see around us is an opposing army. It sometimes feels like we're pressed in on all sides. And so what this series has done for many of us is caused us to really challenge our thinking around who God is and who we are. Because it's challenging us to question what we see around us. You see, God is calling us to be an expectant people. But that is difficult when you're in the battle. And I know it. I know it. And so what I want to do 
Today and end is address this question of how we respond in the battle. You see, for some of us here, we've almost decided to quit, to give up. It's just too hard. It's not worth it. My old life was better, thank you very much. And maybe some of you are pushing in, but the fear has gripped you. What does the future look like if I press in? And so I want to look at two short stories that address both those questions and see what we can learn from them. And the first one is about not quitting before victory comes. And it's a great story that uh, we're going to touch on. And it's about a tribe of Joshua. Joshua took over the promised land. Two tribes came out of Joshua, Manasseh and Ephraim. And the tribe of Ephraim were valiant men. They were known as warriors. And one day they went up in the battle against the Philistines. And we read what happens in 1 Samuel 4.10. It's going to be on the screen. 1 Samuel 4.10 to 11. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. And what happened? The ark of God was captured. The ark of God, the very presence of God, where the, the laws of God were kept, was captured and it left Israel as if the presence of the Lord left. You're thinking, wow, how on earth is that encouraging? That is a good question. But here's the question I want us to ask. Why did they flee? What, was it that the Philistines were too great for them? Was it that God had abandoned them? Well, the answer is found actually in Psalm 78, verses 9 to 11. You see, the psalmist is referencing this very battle, and he says this. The men of Ephraim, though they were armed with bows, they turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. They forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. You see, in that battle, this famous tribe of Ephraim, they fled, and the Israelites lost. But here's the thing, God was with them. He had equipped them. They were about to take victory, and yet they fled. And we learned two things from this, which I think is a challenge for us this morning. The first thing that we can learn is this. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. You see, this is the lie of the enemy, that his law is there to entrap us and to squeeze us and make us live small lives, when actually the opposite is true. You see, his law for the Israelites was designed to keep them safe and to position them for his blessings. That was the whole point. That was the whole point. You see, the law enabled Israel to be set apart. Holiness. You see, it's in the position of holiness that he pours out his blessings upon his people. But they turned back because they refused to live by his rule and reign. They refused to be his people and the way God was calling them because it was just too hard, thank you very much. And I find this interesting. They didn't say they, didn't want to, they no longer wanted to be part of Israel. They just didn't want to follow his rules. And I find that fascinating. It's like, I don't want to leave the church, I love it. It's a great social club. But I don't really want to follow God. Now let me say this, come as you are, this place 
You belong before you believe. Absolutely, come and play part of it. But there comes a point on the journey where you don't stay as you are. And for some of you, you've camped in the come as you are. And I want to encourage you, God's got more for you. (laughs) The very point of don't stay as you are is because God wants to position you for his blessings. It's not that he wanted to bash you over the head and say, don't stay as you are because you're rubbish. It's don't stay as you are because I've got something amazing for you. But the Israelites, Ephraim, the men of Ephraim, like, nah, not interested. But the victory was just about to be there. And for some of you, the victory is just about there, and you're saying, I'm about to give up. It's too hard. This position, malarkey, nah, not for me. The reason God is saying position yourself is because he's got blessings. Let's not miss it. And why is it easy then to shrink back? Because number two, they forgot what God had done, the wonders he had shown You see, what we find in the rest of that psalm is the psalmist recounts all the great feats of how God had come through for them. But the men of Ephraim made a decision not to think about that. They made a decision to say, I can't look at even that stuff because it makes me having to respond and say yes to him. Let me say this. There's a scripture in Revelation. I've forgotten where it is. But it says, the church overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of that testimony. You see, there's power in testimony. There is power in testimony. And so if you feel like you want to give up, you say, wait a minute, this is what God has done in my life before. And you recount your testimony. And when you think, no, it's going to be too hard, revival's not coming, you think, well, look what God's done in throughout the church history. Look how God has moved. That's the God that I serve. You know, Hebrews 12.1, a very famous verse says this, therefore, since we are surrounded By such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders diligent hands and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. This verse is often done an injustice in how it is preached because it's said that the great cloud of witnesses, they're going, yay, yay, we're witnessing what you're doing. It's not that. We have a great cloud of witnesses who have witnessed what Jesus has done for them. That's what this means. We have a great cloud of witnesses who can stand and say, God came through for me and he broke in. So I want to tell you this now, don't give up. If you're feeling like it's too hard, it's because victory's around the corner. If you feel like you want to go back to how you used to live, it's because the way you're going to live and God's calling you is way better than before. And sometimes you need to open your eyes and realize you've got bows in your hand. That God has equipped you for such a time as this. And that you need to use your weapons of warfare that God has given you. Amen. Second story then. I know we're jumping around. For some of you, you're saying, but Mark, I am pressing in. And yes, I do want to change. And yes, I am using my warfare, my my weapons. But have you seen how big the other army is? And I'm feeling fearful. And I've spoken to so many of you who are saying that. Let me just encourage you with this story. And it's a story we read in 2 Kings 6, 15 to 17. I love this story. Let me set the scene as 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 you're going there. You're probably reading it now. Oh, that's Hebrews 12, 1. Perfect, we'll leave that. (laughs) So what happens? Elijah... No, Elisha, sorry, (laughs) who came after Elijah, 
He was helping out the king of Israel when they were fighting um, Aram. And so the king of Aram was not able to beat Israel. And king, the king of Aram was getting fed up with this. And he said to his guys, where is this prophet Elijah? We need to go and sort him out, basically. That's what he said. And they said, well, Elisha is in that direction. And so the king of Aram didn't just go there himself personally. He didn't send one of his generals, which you thought he would have done. He sent a whole army for Elisha. That's how scared he was of him. And so we join the story where Elisha's servant is looking out the window and sees this army coming. Okay, so 2 Kings 6, 15, where is it? Where is it? Here we go. When the servant of the man of God, so when, when Elisha's servant got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. <gasps> oh my Lord, what shall we do? The, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, Elisha said. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Oh, it is good. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow. He saw the heavenly hosts He saw the heavenly hosts. You see, it felt like he was surrounded, pressed on all sides. Victory seemed like the least likely of all outcomes. After all, it was just little old him and little old Elisha. And by the way, don't we sometimes feel like that ourselves? It's little old me against this whole army. But what I love about this story is that the servant didn't run away. It's not like Elisha looked around and saw his servant scarpering off into the hills. No, what did he say he did? He said, what shall we do? He inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the prophet. He sought God's word. And that's what we need to do in this season when you're feeling fearful. What shall I do, Lord? And that's how it starts, asking God in humility. Lord, what shall I do? And I think the answer would have completely surprised the servant. It wasn't, well, this is your tactical plan. It was essentially this. Do nothing, just see. Do nothing, just see. And his eyes were open to the heavenly hosts. And God is saying this morning, I am right here with you in the battle. He is fighting for you, guys. The heavenly hosts are positioned for you as you position yourself for him. And in that moment, the servant was transformed from fear into boldness and confidence. And let me just pause on this. Some of you, you can see it, in fact. You can taste it. I think there are Elishas of this generation right here. And you can see it. And God is requiring of you to pray, Lord, open our eyes. God has placed Elijah in our midst to intercede for us, to say, would you open our eyes to see you, Lord? And I want to encourage you, if, if that is you and you can see it, you can feel it, don't just internalize it, intercede for the saints. Amen? And I just release that spirit of intercession in this place. I just release that now, Lord, that we would be a people that pray, open our eyes, and that those Elishas in this place, and there are some here that are yet to be Elishas, Lord, 
now, Lord. Pour out that anointing, that Elisha anointing right now, Lord. Shadama, babakiyarama, shadama. And so what do these two stories tell us? Essentially what they're telling us is this, that we need to align our thinking and beliefs in what God says. You see, if the men of Ephraim realized what God was truly saying, they wouldn't have run away. And what we see here is when the servant of, of Elisha knew what God was saying, he didn't run away. And so this gets me to my final point and where I want to bring it home is that the real battlefield is in the mind. You see, if we don't renew our minds so that we believe his truth, then we won't even start positioning ourselves or when the going gets tough, we'll shrink back. Romans 12.2, very famous. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformation starts here. Then you can test and approve God's perfect and pleasing will. And by the way, that, that word approve is actually prove. It's actually prove out his will. In other words, he doesn't need our approval, but he's calling us to prove it as we renew ourselves. You see, this verse is a holiness verse. You know, holiness has been set apart from the world and been set unto God. This is the holiness verse. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind into Christ. And what is the pattern of this world? Fear. Fear operates in the void of love. And so here is the crux of it. We need to start aligning our thinking with him and allow his love to fill us. I'd like to invite the band up. We need to start aligning what we think with what he says. <clears throat> I want to share um, a picture the Lord gave me last year when I was thinking about this role. And I was saying, I was thinking about preaching, saying, oh Lord, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be satisfied, Lord, until the windows of heaven open and revival hits. <laughs> it's great what you're doing, Lord, but we need more. And instantly God gave me a picture of a building being built, and it was almost like every time I preached, a brick would be put in the building. And Jesus, the Lord said to me, Look, Mark, there will come a time when the building will be ready and I will breathe my spirit in. And at the time, I thought, wow, that's amazing, Lord. You're going to breathe in this building. But as I was preparing this on Thursday, God brought to mind that picture and said, Mark, you realize the house being built is the people. The building is us, his temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And so why does the proclamation of his truth, this is where I'm going to tie it in, why aligning ourselves with his truth does it build the house? Ephesians 2.19, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. See, a brick. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, it's in him. It's all about Jesus. Here it is. The truth proclaimed is the very person of Jesus. Jesus. 
the truth proclaimed, what we align ourselves to his truth is we align ourselves to the person of Jesus. And I want to end where I started in this. You see, at the very end, <laughs> the very end of this, Rick Joyner, who you, some of you may know, he's a, a prophet, an author, uh, and a pastor, he wrote this at the very end and says this, the truth is not just the proper order and assimilation of spiritual facts, but a person. True Christianity is not just the assessment and agreement with biblical truth, but a relationship with the truth himself. It is not knowing the book of the Lord that should be our goal, but knowing the Lord of the book. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, God is waiting to reveal his truth to this generation. He is waiting to reveal Jesus in a new way. And that is revival. As we position ourselves in holiness, he reveals himself in a new way. Calling in revival is calling upon Jesus to reveal himself to us. And in his presence, victory is found. We need to make a choice to align ourselves to him and our thinking. And we do that by saying, I need you, Jesus. I'd like to stand. You know, we've been, the church has had to recapture what it means for who we are in Christ Jesus. But let me tell you now, I think we are approaching a new season where we need to rethink what it means for Christ in us. Who we are with Christ in us.